Since September, we have been traveling and teaching through the first four books of the New Testament. And next week, we're going to put a pause on our gospel series to celebrate Christmas. And we'd love to see you here next week. The kids are going to be up on stage. It's going to be a great week. But we've seen over and over in this gospel series that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was unique in who he was. He was unique in why he came. And as we began to see last week, he was even unique in how he spoke and taught Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that we began to look at last week, and we're going to look at again this week, ends with this statement, Matthew 7, 28. It says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. And so this begs to ask the question, how was Jesus unique in his teaching? What was so different about it? And how is he different from these teachers of the law? Now, in order to understand how Jesus was different from the teachers of the law, we need to understand, well, what were the teachers of the law even like in the first place? And to do that, we need to step back into the Old Testament, and specifically the law of the Old Testament. Many of you may be familiar with Moses and the Ten Commandments. Matter of fact, this past summer, we spent 10 weeks looking at the Ten Commandments, one commandment for each week. And by the way, if you weren't here for that series or you missed a few weeks or maybe you need a refresher, I encourage you to go online, plumcreek.org slash listen, and you can search for 10. You can also check it out on our podcast channel. But these Ten Commandments given by God to Moses for the people of Israel were a part of the larger law of God given to Israel. In all, there were 613 laws we can find in the Old Testament. Some of them civil laws, others ceremonial, and still some moral. But these laws were given to the people of Israel to set them apart from the rest of the world and define them as God's people. These laws were intended to protect the covenantal community of Israel and also give insight into how they should worship God. And through the years, Jews would pass down the law of God by simply telling others what God had said and explaining the scriptures to them. And oftentimes, these rabbis or teachers of the law would also comment on what those laws meant. Now, I should say, that's not much different than what I'm doing right now or what we do each week. We don't just come in each week and read a scripture and we say, you're dismissed. No, we usually explain what's going on and even give application to it. But the problem with the Jewish rabbis or teachers was that they were, although at first maybe good intentioned, adding to the law instead of explaining it. For example, you may know that one of the Ten Commandments, the fourth one, is to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, if a rabbi was sharing this command with you, you might rightfully ask, then how do I do that? And he might answer, well, don't work. But you might respond, well, what do you consider work? Can I cook, for example? Can I take a walk? If I can, how far can I walk? Can I mow the lawn? Can I clean out my closet? Can I put up Christmas decorations? Or Hanukkah decorations, I don't know. Can I change the channel on the TV? Okay, perhaps a few of those are a bit ridiculous, but this still is a legitimate question. And this is why when many of the rabbis would come along and explain the, and tell God's law, they would often explain what it meant. And oftentimes each rabbi or teacher had their own interpretation of the law. Just Google, am I allowed to cook on the Sabbath? And you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But this kind of dissecting and extreme exaggeration of the commandments, they were at an all-time high during Jesus' day. 
When Jesus enters the scene, these religious leaders, sometimes they're called the Pharisees, others the Sadducees, teachers of law, the scribes. Anyways, all of these groups, they were the kings of finding every minutia and nicety of the law. And as a side note, this kind of careful attention to God's law is not the problem. The problem was the heart of these religious leaders were more concerned about the minutia instead of the heart of the one who had given those laws. You may remember a few weeks ago, we looked briefly at the story of Jesus who healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders were more concerned about the fact that Jesus worked because he healed instead of rejoicing in the fact that good was done for another human being. And that was the problem for Jesus. On another occasion, Jesus calls out the same group of people. He says this to them, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So here they are again, making a big deal out of the small things and a small deal out of the big things. But notice what Jesus says. He says you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, you should make a big deal about the small things and a big deal about the big things. Jesus doesn't deny the fact that they should give God what is rightfully his. They should even be very precise about it. However, in being precise about it, they should also make sure that they're living out the heart of the lawgiver, showing justice, having mercy, being faithful. And this is what Jesus does over and over in his teachings. And it's no different in the Sermon on the Mount. In this particular compiling of Jesus' teachings that we know is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to spell out for us the heart of the lawgiver. And this is a part of what Jesus came to show and to teach us. It's partially why the crowds were amazed at his teaching. But this teaching about the heart of the lawgiver was a part of a message about the kingdom of God. Now, last week, Doug began to introduce this theme that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God theology. But that message that Jesus taught uh, when he came about doing extraordinary things was that the kingdom of God, or heaven, was at hand. And that means that it's near, it's within reach. And what he was saying when he said that was that he was coming to inaugurate and establish a kingdom where God reigns and rules in the hearts of those who would devote their life to him. But here's what I want you to catch. If Jesus is setting up a kingdom, then that means there's going to have to be a ruler and a king. And that ruler or king will set up a way of living. He will rule. And this way of living is partially described to us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's fully developed in the entire New Testament. But we get a lot of rich material in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to look at today. And the key message in the Sermon on the Mount and it's really the aim and goal of kingdom living. And this is, it is this, a greater righteousness that is patterned after God's own character. That means that if we're to live in God's kingdom, be subjected to his reign and rule, we must live by his law. And his law is based on his character. And since this new way of living is patterned after God's character, you will notice Jesus will not simplify water down, or even make it easier to follow God. If anything, what Jesus requires of those living in God's kingdom is more demanding than the Mosaic law. But the sermon 
is Jesus setting the tone for those who are part of the kingdom of God. He's describing what it means to live in God's kingdom, a new ethical norm. And this new norm is upside down from the rest of our world. It's countercultural. There's some times where it's altruistic and left-wing, and there's other times where it's very conservative and traditional. Jesus offers this level of teaching that was different than any other teachers of his day and of ours. But here's what I want you to catch as he teaches. It's actually not a new way of living. It's the kind of living that God had intended from the very beginning. It's why Jesus says this as he begins his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, heaven and earth will, uh, uh, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen by, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I'll say it again. The key message in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and also the aim and goal of kingdom living, is a greater righteousness, not a new righteousness, a greater righteousness that is patterned after God's own character. And this fact is what separates Jesus from the rest of the religious leaders. It's why when he teaches, the crowds are amazed at his teaching. Because over and over, Jesus is dismantling this preconceived notion regarding righteousness. Righteousness in God's kingdom must exceed that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. This greater righteousness in the kingdom of God is not patterned after the minutia of law-keeping. Rather, it's a greater righteousness that's patterned after the character of God. And as you listen to Jesus' teaching you'll see he's not just revealing to us a law, he's also revealing to us the heart of the lawgiver. Because in this, and in his teaching, Jesus is only concerned about the specifics of law-keeping because they are directly related to the person who gives those laws. Over and over, as Jesus commands us how, though, how, Jesus commands us how to live in God's kingdom, he's going to get to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue has its basis in the heart of God, who is the lawgiver. Every law of God is based on God's character. His law is not some arbitrary, illogical, random set of rules. His law has its basis in who he is. For example, you'll see in just a moment that Jesus will say that a part of living in God's kingdom is that we should love our enemies. And this rule or law that Jesus gives has its basis in the very nature of God. Because, as 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Love is who he is. But furthermore, God's love, when confronted with sin, responds in grace. Look at this in Romans 5, 10. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So this verse tells us that God responds to us, his enemies, in love. But why? Because he is love. And since he is love, he can demand and even require of us that we should love and even love our enemies. Let me give you another example. Again, you'll see in a moment as we look through this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus commands that those who live in God's kingdom should be faithful in their marriages. 
And he does this because this rule or law has its basis in the nature of God. Psalm 119.90 says, Your faithfulness, O God, endures through the generations. Over and over in the scriptures, the faithfulness of God is confirmed. And because God is faithful, it's who he is, then he can demand of us that we also be people who are faithful in our marriages. So this is why when we sin, we err, we violate the holy and personal God. Because our sin is not against some random set of rules set up in a classroom or even against a government or some external force in outer space. Our sin is an attack on the very nature of God. We're not just violating some random rules he came up with. We're violating who he is. So Jesus' message is not a new one. He's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he intends to communicate to us the true intent of the law. He wants us not just to see a set of rules. He wants us to see who God is. And when we live by this way of living that Jesus teaches, when we submit to this authority, that's when we're kingdom living. And when we live in God's kingdom, we know God. Because in keeping his law, we know and understand who he is because his law reveals who he is since it's based on his character. But the character of God requires a greater righteousness than anything that has ever been seen before Jesus. Now, let's take a quick time out here because I've been throwing around that word righteousness a lot in this message so far. And really, the reality is we don't use righteousness in our everyday language. It's, it's a pretty churchy word. About the only time you hear it, except maybe in 80s slang, is in the context of church or religious discussion. So I want to pause the message for a moment just to discuss and define exactly what righteousness is. Well, in the scriptures, righteousness is a conformity to the proper norm or law or standard. And in the Bible, the norm or standard is God himself. So sometimes the Bible will talk about how God is a righteous God. And what that means is that he will always act in a way that is consistent with his own nature. Or he's always true to himself. Sometimes the Bible will talk about a righteous person. And this is someone who conforms to the standard of God's law. One who is innocent with every respect to the law. And this kind of righteousness that the Bible describes, by the way, is absolute righteousness. Meaning perfect conformity to God's character. Now I should mention, occasionally the Bible will speak of relative righteousness. Somebody who, relatively speaking, is a good person or relatively speaking, keeps God's law. However, in the kingdom of God, only absolute righteousness will do. It's why Jesus says this over in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Absolute perfection, complete conformity to the law of God. This is the greater righteousness. It's greater than even the Pharisees because they were only concerned about the particulars of the law and not about conforming every part of their life to the heart of the lawgiver, to his character. This is also why you will never see Jesus compromising, watering down, or simplifying, or getting rid of any part of God's law. Matter of fact, when he teaches God's law, he's going to get to the heart of the issue. He's going to describe a righteousness that can extend to every part of our lives. So as Jesus begins to develop his message in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to first talk about our relationships with one another or how we can be righteous with each other. He's going to deal with six topics. The first one he deals with is murder. 
Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, we're not going to have time to dig into each one of these topics that Jesus uh, deals with. We're we're just going to read them, really. And and I would say, again, I'm going to mention that Ten Commandments series because we dealt with a lot of these passages. And so if you need a clearer and more fuller picture of what Jesus is teaching here, I encourage you to go back and to listen to that series. But let me just say this. In this teaching here, Jesus is telling us that it is not just the physical act of murder that constitute a breaking of God's law. It's also the negative and harsh heart, attitude, and words that we have and speak toward other human beings that also constitutes as a breaking of God's law. So do you see what Jesus has done here? First, he's raised the bar and what it means to be obedient to God. But he does this because God has from the beginning, intended that we act act in every way with love, compassion, and grace and kindness toward others. So, yeah, don't go out killing someone, but also don't go out treating people unkindly. God's character is one of love and compassion and grace. Ours should be the same toward others. His next teaching is regarding adultery. He says this in verse 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus raises the bar on what it means to live in God's kingdom and to obey God's law. And again, he does this because he's getting back to God's design and God's heart. God not only intends that we don't go messing around on our wives, he wants us to be faithful in every single way to our spouse. Third, Jesus deals with divorce. He teaches this in verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this passage has a lot of complications, and it has been greatly debated through the years. And we don't really have time to dig into it and figure out exactly what it's saying this morning, although you should do that at some point. But let me say this. Divorce was never in God's design It was never what God intended. And because the heart of the lawgiver is about being faithful and keeping promises, it means that we should work hard in our marriages to remain faithful and keep our marriage vows so that they don't end in divorce. The fourth topic Jesus teaches is on oaths or making swears and promises. He explains this in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Jesus raises the bar yet again, telling us that kingdom living means that we are so truthful, so honest, that we don't have to swear to, by anything to raise the weight of our claim. Rather, our simple word, when spoken, can be trusted. Again, this is the heart of God, the lawgiver. He is a God of truth. The Bible says he cannot lie. And so he gives us a command to be people who are truthful Now, the last two topics that Jesus deal with share a common thread. Jesus teaches on how those who are part of God's kingdom should treat others, especially those who have wronged them. 
And this is what he says, Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And just a few verses down, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we've already established that God is love and that the heart of God is to forgive those who've wronged him. And so he requires of us that in life we pursue forgiveness, not retaliation. And that we have a genuine and honest love toward every person, whether they've wronged us or not. Our response should be the same as God's. So those are the six topics that Jesus deals with related to righteousness toward one another. And really, those six things can be summed up in this one sentence that Jesus says, and you probably know it well, we call it the golden rule. Matthew 7, 12, it says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I want you to notice what this is saying here. Jesus is not just saying, don't murder someone, or even, he's not even just saying, don't get angry with someone. He's telling us, do to others as you'd have them do to you. The emphasis is on the doing. So that means that the way of responsibility is on us to be actively and sacrificially pursuing doing good for others. We act in goodness first. We don't not act, nor do we react We live our lives in such a way that the love of God is released in our lives and it enables us to emphatically pursue the good of others. So pursue the greater righteousness that's patterned after God's own character for God cares deeply about our hearts toward others. But righteousness in the kingdom of God is not just in our relationship with one another. It's also a greater uh, righteousness in our relationship with God. Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount deals with three religious acts that we can perform that give glory to God. However, Jesus' consistent teaching on every religious act is summed up in the, ver- in the first verse of chapter 6. He says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. In God's kingdom, religious acts are of no good when it's only for self-glory. Pious acts motivated by one's devotion in relationship with God, on the other hand, have great value in God's kingdom. Religious acts aren't bad in and of themselves. The thing that Jesus calls out is the acting that often comes along when we perform religious acts. And many of you know exactly what I mean when I say that, because the issue that Jesus deals with here and addresses is very common in the church today. We offer up religious acts Maybe we come to church, we pray, we even wear our cross necklace, and some of us are so pious we've got that little fish bumper sticker on the back of our car, but it's all show. It's what Jesus calls hypocrisy, and that word simply means actor. You put on a good show for others to see, but your heart is far from God. In the kingdom of God, though, the greater righteousness is for God's glory, not for ours. And so Jesus deals with three issues. First, giving. This is what he says we should do. Giving should be done this way. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. In our prayers, 
Jesus says that it should be done in this way. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In our fasting, we should put oil on our head and wash our face so that it will not be obvious to others that we're fasting, but only to our Father who is unseen. And our Father who sees what is done in secret will reward us. Every religious act we perform should not be for our glory or so that others will recognize how holy we are. It should be because we have a deep and honest desire to show our devotion to God. Now, Jesus is not prohibiting any form of public prayer, or he's not saying you shouldn't give when other people are around. He's acknowledging that the true mark of a member of God's kingdom prays whether the right people are around or not, and gives whether their name will be on a plaque in a room somewhere or not. A mark of a disciple in the kingdom is someone whose heart performs religious acts for the sole purpose of giving God glory. And if you want to test whether or not you're guilty in this area and and you find yourself in hypocrisy or not, figure out when the last time you prayed was and that no one else knew about it except God. Pursue the greater righteousness that's patterned after God's character. For God is after your heart not your counterfeit religious acts. And we know that this is true because the next thing that Jesus deals with in his Sermon on the Mount is the priorities and values that those who are part of God's kingdom has. Jesus teaches that in God's kingdom, his disciples will be consumed with him, not with money, possessions, and not even with self. He teaches us this, Matthew 6, 20, Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, you cannot outsmart God. Your heart is either all in or not at all. It's why Jesus says this in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, both God and this world and its resources make absolute demands. If you're committed to one, it will necessarily mean you are not as committed to the other. So choose you this day who you'll serve. Is it God or is it money? Is it God or is it this world and its resources? Is it God or is it you? And a great test about where your heart is in this area can be whether or not you worry about stuff specifically your stuff. See, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, gives a profound teaching on a proper disposition toward worry. And in that teaching, though, Jesus, for him, it's really about where our trust is. Where do you place your ultimate loyalty and faith? Is it in you and your bank account and what you can accumulate and store up, or is it in the God who provides everything you need? In God's kingdom, his disciples do not worry, but rather, Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So pursue the greater righteousness patterned after God's own character, for God desires a heart that seeks him and his righteousness first. But as Jesus goes on describing this greater righteousness and how those who will live in God's kingdom will conduct themselves, he also describes the attitude in the disposition toward others that these disciples will have. One such behavior is that in God's kingdom, we should not get into the habit of being judgmental. Jesus commands us this, Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. And can I say this? 
if you're a victim of the judgmental attitude that Christ's followers sometimes have, I'm sorry that that's happened to you. And I genuinely apologize because I'm guilty of that sometimes. But I want you to know this. That was never Jesus' intent. For Jesus, a judgmental spirit is to be avoided. And so if you are someone who's in the habit of, of having a judgmental spirit, recognize that that kind of attitude directly impacts how others, including God, look at you and your deficiencies. What you should do instead is take on the attitude of Christ Jesus. Be sensitive and responsive to the failures of others. Pursue the greater righteousness that's patterned after God's own character, for God cares about how we conduct or live out our lives. Now, as you can see, that greater righteousness, that new ethical norm that Jesus demands for those who are living in God's kingdom is anything than watered down, simplified, or even a careless approach to God and his law Kingdom living is about pursuing the greater righteousness that's patterned after God's own character. And in no way is God going to compromise his character just because we cannot meet his demands. Since our Heavenly Father is perfect, that means there is no deficiencies, flaws, lack, or weaknesses in who he is. But that's where the problem lies, isn't it? Because he is so good, perfect, and righteous in every way, and we're so not. Our flaws and weaknesses and deficiencies, they stand in opposition to his perfection. We are not righteous. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, dogmatically proclaims this, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. And that means that there is no ordinary man who has ever perfectly conformed to the character of God. And because of it, we are doomed, doomed, doomed. Doomed for destruction and death. We are hopeless if it's left up to some ordinary man when it comes to being in God's kingdom. But here's the good news. Jesus, who was no ordinary man, did perfectly conform to the character of God since he is God. And because he did, we can be made righteous. Let me say that all again. There is no ordinary man who has ever perfectly conformed to the character of God. However, because Jesus, who is no ordinary man, perfectly conformed to the character of God, we can be made righteous. And this, my friends, is the great truth of the scriptures. That there is no one righteous, no, not even one, but Jesus. Because he was righteous, and because as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't miss this here. It's because he was righteous that we can be made righteous. And Jesus was righteous because in his life, He perfectly conformed to the character of God. He never erred. He never sinned. Even in his death, it was a perfect conformity to the character of God. Because in his death, he took on the full wrath that we deserve. The love of God and the justice of God met at the cross of Christ. And because of that one greater act of righteousness, we who are unrighteous can be declared righteous. His righteousness is what we need. 
And this is what's so amazing about Jesus' teaching. It's what separates him from the teachers of the law, and it's what separates him from any teacher today. He not only taught a way of living that amazed those who hear and read it, he became that way of living. He fulfilled it. He accomplished it so that we can live in God's kingdom. But a decision has to be made. It's the decision that Jesus leaves us with at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. And that is, what will you do with his teachings? Listen to what he says, Matthew 7, 24 and following. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So everyone in this room now has a decision to make. You've heard, so will you obey? First, if you've never responded to Jesus in faith, confession, repentance, and immersion in water, that promise of being declared righteous has not yet been given to you. It can be, but you need to obey through responding to that free offer of grace. And you can do that even today. At the end of service, I'm going to be down front on the floor here, and I'd love to walk you through those steps. So if you are not yet a part of God's kingdom, respond to the greater righteousness that's patterned after God's own character. And that greater righteousness there, that's Jesus. Respond to him and what he has done for you by giving your life to him. But this decision to hear and obey It also applies to every person who's already given their life to Christ and who is already a part of God's kingdom. It's a decision that you and I should make every single day of our life with every choice, thought, and word that we speak, have, or make. Every person who considers themselves a Christ follower has to decide, is Jesus' teachings just another set of teachings or is it something I need to conform to every part of my life? Jared, our executive minister here, he often says this, our knowledge far outweighs our obedience. That is often so true. We come in week after week to hear God's word. Some of us go and sit in life groups and and get more of God's word. Some of us still, we, we have our own devotions that we read through. And those are not a bad thing to do. You should do all of those things. But the problem is it falls on deaf ears. We have the knowledge but we don't obey. Let it be true of us that our obedience is always equal to our knowledge. That every time we hear something and we know it to be true, we do what it says. So if you are a part of the kingdom of God, pursue the greater righteousness that is patterned after God's own character. Now notice what this says. It says, pursue. You have already been declared righteous because of Jesus. So pursue the way of living that he saved you into. And God doesn't leave you alone in that. He's giving you the Holy Spirit as a helper. But he wants to, as you listen and hear his teachings, conform every part of your life to it. You've been made righteous to live in God's kingdom, and now you need to live out that righteousness. Today, you have a choice to make. Will you hear and obey Or will you walk away unchanged? A life of obedience and pursuing God and his kingdom is a life built on a solid rock. Will you stand with me to pray?
God, we give you all the honor, glory, and praise because you are a God who is righteous. You're always good. You're always faithful. You're always true. You're always merciful. You're always kind. You're always loving. You're always just. And God, we thank you for your law. Some people see it as a restriction, but God, we know it only reveals to us who you are. And so God, I pray that those in this room who are already a part of the kingdom of God, that they would come to love your law because in loving your law, they come to love you. But I also pray for anyone in this room who does not yet know you, that they would respond to that one great act of Jesus at the cross, that act of righteousness that accomplished our salvation. We also give you thanks for that. We know that it's because of him and his death, burial, and resurrection that we can be a part of God's kingdom, your kingdom. There's no other way to get there but through him. So we give you honor and glory and praise for that. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.